Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we have the legendary theologian and scholar Richard Bauckham. He is on today to talk about early Christology, how the first Christians came to believe that Jesus was divine and worship him. We talk about the eyewitnesses of Jesus and why we can trust their testimony. Talk about the book of Revelation, which I'm sure some of you will be interested in, but was definitely more of a personal taking advantage of the opportunity to ask some questions that related to some work that I'm doing, but I think it'll be interesting for others. We also talk about his work on the city of Magdala, which is a sort of unknown city in Galilee that has recently been excavated. He worked on a book on that that talks a lot about um, why that city matters in the early church, um, how we can know certain things about perhaps what Jesus was doing, where he was ministering in that time. And uh, we also talk a little bit about his interest in poetry and novels and why theologians should care about those things and not just nerdy academic books, which is something I needed to hear because I struggle at times to want to read fiction and poetry and other things. But as he said, we as theologians need to care about the life of the church and be involved in real life, and that helps us teach theology better. This episode was brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see their books and latest offerings. You can also check out our sponsor, The Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Richard Bauckham. But first, the man, the myth, the legend, no big deal. All the way from Cambridge in the United Kingdom, I have Richard Bauckham. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast today. So let's talk a little bit first about just your faith journey. How did you become a Christian, and how did that lead you into becoming a scholar? Well, I grew up um, going to church, going to Sunday school, which in those days in England means for children, um, getting confirmed in the Anglican church. Um, and I suppose, you know, it, so I, I thought a lot about my faith when I was a teenager. Um, and I think, um, you know, went, went actually through, through, through a lot of serious intellectual stuff as well as spiritual. Um, and I, I always think that being a biblical scholar and a theologian, in a way, it goes right back to that time when being a very intellectual sort of person, you know, I had to, I had to make sure that Christianity made sense in intellectual terms. So I, I remember reading all sorts of stuff about, you know, biblical scholarship, about science and religion, all that kind of stuff. I was doing all that when I was a sort of uh, older teenager and into my student days. So I, I think that's, that's so, so, so that for me, I suppose, the sort of existential spiritual side of, of being a Christian could never be separate from the intellectual side of thinking about it, hmm. just being the sort of person I am. I, I was confirmed in the Anglican Church. It was a sort of, it's kind of stage of, uh, you know, becoming a, a fully-fledged adult Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it just made me think, well, if I'm doing this, I ought to take it seriously. Um, and that was kind of the, the trigger, I think, to, uh, and that was a, that was around the age of 12. Um, so, 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 from then onwards, uh, I mean, I've had a very sort of smooth, smooth spiritual journey in a way, you know. Um, people often ask me, 
surely you must have had doubts and crises because so many people who go into kind of reading up the academic stuff on the Bible and so on, you know, have run into problems for their faith. And um, mm. it never really happened to me in any, any serious way. Well, that's a, that's a blessing in and of itself. I hope my children have as uh, quote-unquote boring of a testimony as that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when did you decide, did you wrestle with going into the clergy versus scholarship, or were you always, being an intellectually gifted person, did you always think, this is what I want to do? Um, I think I always expected to be something intellectual, as it were. Um, I don't think I ever thought I really had pastoral gifts. That, that's why I never seriously considered the clergy as, as a vocation. Um, I mean, it was quite a while before I got into theology as a vocation because I started off reading history um, as a student at Cambridge, and I did a PhD in the history faculty. Now, I should say that all, all the way along, you know, I was, I was reading, you know, quite advanced stuff in New Testament studies, theology, um, just for my own interest, really. Um, but what I was studying was history. I did a PhD in the history faculty, which was a study of a 16th century English theologian, so there's getting to be quite a lot of theology in that. Um, and that sort of was my kind of transition from history into theology. But I've never done a degree in theology. Um, I, I just kind of moved into it. Um, but I have always been very grateful for having done um, a really good degree in, in history. Um, I think a, a good training as a historian has been extremely valuable to me as a biblical scholar. And it's quite unusual. Most most biblical scholars learn how to do history from other biblical scholars. And I think there's always a danger there of doing a sort of history that um, a, a, an ordinary historian perhaps would not recognize as, as, as the way to do history, developing a kind of special way of doing history for biblical studies. Um, and I've, I've always felt, um, you know, I have a good grasp of historical method um, as it applies whatever kind of history one's studying. And I bring that into my study of Scripture. Yeah, and so does this interest in history that's bled into biblical languages, would that explain some of your, your multiple interests? You've done everything from Revelation to First and Second Peter to the Gospels to um, all kinds of different things. So is that, is that part of it? Yes, but it's wider than that. You've, you've only mentioned New Testament topics. Um, you see, the, the first thing I did as a, as a proper teaching job, I had a temporary lectureship, but proper, my first proper teaching job was teaching historical and contemporary theology in the University of Manchester. So there I was, there, there wasn't really much Bible in it. I, I used to take, teach a course, say, for example, on Christology, which started with some biblical stuff and then kind of moved through the development of patristic Christology and right into modern Christology. Um, so I did a lot of work in, in theology, um, I wrote a couple of books about the theology of Jürgen Moltmann, contemporary German theologian, mm -hmm. who I have learned a great deal from. Um, and the other side as well, um, you mentioned New Testament stuff, but I've always been very interested in stuff, as it were, around the New Testament, um, the, the Judaism of the New Testament period, Jewish history of that period as, as kind of background and context, and other sort of early Christian literature that illuminates the New Testament. Um, so I, 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 sometimes I say my career is explained simply because whenever I'm really interested in something, I, I pursue it <laughs> in a thorough academic way and often end up writing books about it. 
Yeah, well, I'm thankful that you have because you've, you've made some great contributions for sure. Um, one of those has been early Christology. That's something that you were writing on you know, in the late 70s and have continued to write on, at least in the late 70s, maybe earlier, and continue to write on. So could you talk a little bit about your view of early Christology, about the development of Christology, uh, your interaction with Bousset and Hingle and some of that stuff early on? Yes, I suppose I, I started with what was a very standard view in New Testament studies, that Christology started um, at a very low level, in, is, is the way in which people talk about high and low Christology, started low with Jesus as some kind of human divine agent, a sort of prophet or um, agent of divine action, something like that, but a purely human agent of God, um, used to be called functional Christology because it meant that Jesus was functionally divine, but not by nature divine, acted for God, but was by nature simply a human being. Um, and and, and the, the standard view was that that's how Christology started, and it gradually developed into a higher and higher Christology until it ended up, as it were, identifying Jesus with God, and, and, and then talking about divine nature, um, as you get in patristic Christology and the Fathers. Um, so it's a progression from functional Christology to ontological Christology, from Jesus acting as God, acting on God's behalf, to Jesus actually being divine. Now, my contribution, I think, was to say that if we look at the way in which Jewish theology understood God in the New Testament period, um, this will enable us to get, as it were, beyond that division, that, that dichotomy of functional and ontological. Um, so what I argued was that Jews at that time, when they wanted to explain why their God was the only God, what's unique about God, um, what makes God the only God, they said particularly two things. They said that God is the only creator of all things, and that God is the only sovereign lord of all things. So there you have two, as it were, divine functions, creating and ruling, um, which are not simply divine functions that can be delegated to someone else, such as a human being or an angel. Mm -hmm. They are divine functions that are intrinsic to God being God. Um, and when the early Christians therefore started talking, as they did from the beginning, about Jesus sharing the cosmic throne of God in heaven, ruling all things on God's behalf, but ruling beside God, sharing God's own rule over all things. That can only mean God, uh, it can only mean that Jesus shares the identity of God, that's the way I put it, the unique identity of God includes Jesus. Um, and then, of course, in some parts of the New Testament, you get that um, view of Jesus extended to his participation in God's creation of all things. The key thing is creation of all things, ruling all things. God, of course, has many deputies, um, such as the kings of Israel, who rule on his behalf, mm -hmm. but they don't rule from the cosmic throne over all things. So it's, it's the being creator of all things and ruling all things. And that little phrase, all, all things, it's all over the place in the New Testament. Once you start looking for it, you find it. Um, so the way I spoke about it was, um, and this was, as it were, inventing a new 
way of speaking in order to um, uh, encapsulate what I think was going on um, in early Jewish Christianity. Um, the, the, the idea is, I call it, a divine identity Christology. Um, the meaning is that Jesus is included in the unique divine identity. Uh, I don't say Jesus is identified with God because they're actually very vague. I mean, all sorts of things. Um, Jesus is included in the unique divine identity. Um, and that's what I think the early Christians were trying to say. And it explains why, as most people now agree, um, early Christians within the sphere of Jewish theology, the first Jewish Christians, um, reached uh, a view of Jesus as divine without abandoning monotheism. Mm. They remained Jewish monotheists. How could they do that while having a very high Christology? The answer is that they included Jesus within the, the one unique identity of God. They would never have got there by adding Jesus to the unique identity of God. Jesus would then always be, at best, some kind of demigod. Um, what they did was to include Jesus in the unique divine identity. And so I had uh, Larry Hurtado on the show a few episodes ago, and we had discussed a little bit about some of the disagreements you all have. Um, you agree fundamentally on a lot of things, but one of the things that he pushes back on a little bit is this divine identity language, that this is kind of a theological category that's being imposed back into it, not really a, an historical category that the first century Christians would have understood. So how do you wrap in kind of what he's saying and his pushback there on what you're trying to do with that term? Well, you see, if you want to talk about what people in a certain context in the past said, you always have to invent terms in which to to in which to explain what they were saying hmm. um, unless you you know it's a, it's a kind of meta level of thinking um, and most people most of the time don't do their own meta level of thinking they, they just do the thinking they don't then stand back and say well how do we how do we describe what we're thinking you see what I mean I mean the, the simple word Christology um, is, a, is a basic illustration I mean nobody can talk about this topic nowadays without using the word Christology of course, the early Christians never used the word Christology. Mm -hmm. It's a term we've invented um, to categorize what they were doing when they said things about Jesus. So all I'm doing is saying that um, the things that early Christians said about God and Jesus and the relation of Jesus to God um, can be explained as divine identity Christology. Um, it, it's a label for what they were doing when they said, for example, Jesus is seated on God's throne in heaven. And so you did some early work on Revelation where you talked about how some of this comes up in the book of Revelation. Then you wrote your commentary, your short theological commentary on Revelation, which was, uh, of all the great Revelation commentaries, that one's mercifully short and mercifully to the point, which yes. uh, is appreciated. And as somebody who's doing my uh, dissertation on the Trinity in the book of Revelation, it's been very helpful to me. So how did you see, this is probably for my own benefit, not for anybody else listening, but um, how did you see Revelation? Did you see that as sort of a, one of the linchpins of the Lamb on the throne being the sort of creator-creature divide, or is there more to it there, or other places you'd point to as well? Yes, I hadn't really quite got to divine identity Christology when I wrote that book. Um, incidentally, it's not a commentary, of course, it's a book about the theology of Revelation. Right. Um, I hadn't quite got there. I mean, if I read it now, I can say that, I can see that basically I, that's what I was saying, 
but I hadn't quite got there, and I hadn't certainly got the, the, the language for it. Um, so it's almost there, but not quite. Um, but uh, looking back, it, it is a very good case, and I, I think um, um, Revelation has has very high Christology, it has a divine identity Christology. As you say, the lamb on the throne, um, it's an example. Um, but the, the, of course, it's, it, it's, a, it's a late New Testament work from right at the end of the century, one of the latest books of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so my idea that, the old idea that Christology developed from low to high um, could accommodate that for the book of Revelation. You know, it's, it's the end of the development in the first century. Um, so I hadn't really got to the breakthrough where I saw that from the very beginning, Christology is very high. And the simplest way to see that is to look at the way early Christians used Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and so on. Um, they understood that to mean Jesus is seated on God's throne in heaven. And Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted text in the New Testament. That remarkable fact. Um, and there has to be a reason for it. And it must go right back to the beginning. If, if you have a, a feature like that, it occurs all over the place in different strands of the New Testament. Um, it, it's very, very likely to go right back to the beginning. So I think they were, and early Christians, of course, did their theology exegetically on the whole. They were trying to interpret the scriptures and how do the scriptures refer to Jesus. Um, it's the fundamental way they did their Christology, uh, uh, their theology and their Christology. Um, so when they focused on this Psalm 110 verse, um, they were already making, as it were, the highest possible Christological claim mm. that Jesus shares um, the divine rule over all things. Um, and, and of course they then had to spell that out. There were lots of implications of that, like Jesus' involvement in creation, which they didn't get to right at the beginning. But in principle they were already uh, at the highest possible point, that is, Jesus shares the unique identity of God. Um, and they just stayed there, but developed it uh, in more detail and saw the implications through further. So Revelation is um, um, a, 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 it's a, it's a very good example of that, um, which it does in its own way, because Revelation does its theology in its own way. You know, it has its own kind of... Um, uh, scheme of imagery. Um, it, it's doing theology by means of these visionary imagery, mm-hmm. imagery kind, kind of categories. Um, and, and Revelation, I think, is also highly trinitarian. And people often say to me, "You know, you've done Christology. How do you get on from that to Trinity?" Um, and I think the Johannine literature, the Gospel of John, and the Revelation of John, in different ways, um, actually had the most developed trinitarian theology in the New Testament, uh, bringing in the Spirit. As, as well as Christ. Yeah, and that's been the question people have asked me. Okay, you're doing a book on, you're doing a dissertation on the Trinity in the book of Revelation. Where's the Holy Spirit? And I've pointed to the seven spirits and a couple other places, but I bet you could say it more eloquently than I could. So why don't you explain that a little bit? Yes, the seven spirits. Again, you see, Revelation has its own distinctive imagery. So people don't, the Holy Spirit is nowhere else described as the seven spirits. It's especially right. Revelation phrase. But, the, you know, the number seven is the number of fullness. Um, and completeness. So the seven spirits is, a, is an image of the completeness of, of, of the Spirit of God, the complete um, power and activity of the Spirit of God. Um, and then you need to look at the way the seven spirits are related to Christ. Um, and uh, in the vision in chapter 5, 
um, the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. Um, so they're, image, they're an image of the presence of God in, in, in the world, the power of God in the world, the, the horns being a symbol of power. Um, but they're the spirit of Christ. I mean, that's saying what Paul says, they simply put the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Christ. Mm-hmm. Revelation does it by describing the Lamb, seven, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. Um, but you also get the other side of uh, Revelation's doctrine of the spirit is the spirit of prophecy, um, where you get the two prophets who represent the church. Um, so the spirit um, inspires prophecy in the church. It's a major feature of the, the spirit of Revelation. Um, but in these subtle um, uses of imagery, um, Revelation depicts the divine spirit, uh, because the ten, seven spirits are there already in chapter 4 before he introduces Christ mm. into the picture. Uh, it's the, they represent the divine spirit, but the divine spirit as the spirit of Christ, um, which you get in different categories in Paul and in the Gospel of John. But that's Revelation's way of doing it. Yeah, and his seven spirits, you know, some of the other um, Second Temple literature talks about the seven spirits as, you know, a host of chief angels or this other thing. But it seems like John is saying, I'm going to take that language and turn it on its head and make it in relation to Christ, put it in the doxology, those kind of things. So how, how would you say John is separating himself from the from the other apocalyptic literature that's similar? In, in all sorts of ways, of course. Yeah. I mean, he's using a, he's using a genre of literature. I think, I think one of the key things people have to realize about Revelation is that it does belong to a genre of literature which is otherwise not represented in the New Testament, the Apocalypse. Um, it's why people find Revelation so difficult. You know, we get used to what sort of literature the gospel is or a letter. Um, but people then come to Revelation and it's so different, they don't know what to do with it. Um, but it does belong to a genre of literature, which goes back to Daniel in, in the Old Testament, but there were many Jewish examples um, between the Testaments and in the New Testament period. Um, so John is using um, many of, uh, uh, and of course it's saturated with Old Testament language. John is constantly alluding to the Old Testament. And to understand Revelation, you've got to be constantly picking up those allusions to the Old Testament. A lot of the meaning comes through those um, allusions. I mean, the one we've just mentioned, the, the eyes of the Lord that go all through the world, um, that's an Old Testament image which uh, John has picked up there. And, and, and made it part of this idea of the seven spirits. Um, yes, I, I, I think John, you see, one of, one of the key things of doing theology in the, in the New Testament, in other words, the doctrine of God, who God is and who Jesus is, um, is to realize that monotheism draws a sharp distinction between God and all other reality. Because God is the only creator of all things, and the only rule of all things. So in the last resort, everything else is created by God, and everything else is subject to God's sovereignty. So you cannot have, in the Jewish um, understanding of things, you cannot have halfway beings that are neither God nor creature. Um, You can't straddle that gap. It's It's a sharp, hard line. Um, between creator and created, ruler and ruled. And a lot of the search for origins of Christology 
in um, later Jewish literature, I think goes wrong because it loses sight of that line. And it imagines that you can get a divine Christology out of precedents that are very highly exalted creatures, extraordinary angels, you know, that act on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. But in the last resort, they're creatures. They're created by God. And you, however high you get on the scale of creaturehood, that doesn't take you across the line into divinity. And that's the step the early Christians did, which I don't think um, Jewish literature did. Um, they, they took the step of putting Christ um, in, in the category of God. So let's move on to another one of your more celebrated works and studies, the eyewitnesses in the Gospels. So that mm -hmm. shows some of your multidisciplinary interests there. You've got some historical, internal evidence. You've got uh, some cognitive psychology. You work in there on, on the idea of memory. So talk through a little bit what you were doing in that book and how you think that sort of helps us understand the Gospels and, and the first believers in Jesus. Yes, incidentally, I've always thought of it as a book that I could never have written earlier in my career because all kinds of things sort of came together as I was writing it. Um, it, it, um, it, it it's, as the title says, it's um, uh, looking at the role of the eyewitnesses, the people who themselves saw um, the events of Jesus, they were present, involved in the events of Jesus' story. Um, what role did they play in the process that led from the history of Jesus to the Gospels? Um, and, you know, the, the big question um, about the Gospels and the historical Jesus is, is what happened between one and the other. Um, and this, the old form critical view was that all kinds of things happened. Um, traditions were handed down orally in the communities, um, adapted them freely in all sorts of ways, you know. Um, so you've got a complex process between the eyewitnesses who started the traditions off but seemed to have had nothing else to do with them, according to the form critics, um, and the writing of the Gospels. Um, so my alternative to that is to argue that the eyewitnesses themselves, the way they told their stories, are closely behind the texts of the Gospels that we have, um, and the precise way in which each of the Gospels is related to eyewitness testimony is a bit different in each case. In my view, the Gospel of John was actually written by an eyewitness. Um, the Gospel of Mark I think, as the old church tradition had it from the earliest period after the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark um, was based on Peter's um, recounting of um, the, 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 the stories about Jesus and the words of Jesus. Um, but, but in either case, um, we're, we're pretty close to the way the eyewitnesses told the story. Um, that, that's really what the book is arguing. Um, and um, so it's a kind of paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the, the, the reception of the book shows that. Um, it, it, it's a necessarily very controversial book, given the, the context of historical Jesus studies. And it's the sort of book I, I, I would never have expected um, senior scholars who spent their career working with a different paradigm to say, oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> switch their power. It doesn't happen. When it occasionally happens, of course, it's great. Um, but, but, but it doesn't happen. Um, so 
um, the, the reaction has been very mixed. And I think the, um, the, the future for this new paradigm, if it has validity, is, of course, with younger scholars who um, don't have behind them a great baggage of having mm. worked with a different back paradigm. And what would be two or three main ideas? We want people to read the book, so we don't want to give the whole book away. <laughs> but what are two or three big ideas you would say, these are the primary reasons why we can trust the eyewitnesses, trust the Gospels, that what they said about Jesus is what it is? Yes. Well, one of the things, you see, people, people say that, apart from John's Gospel, which at least if you admit the final verses, a lot of scholars dismiss the final verses, there's some later, later edition, but if... If you take the final verses seriously, John's Gospel does present itself as written by an eyewitness, mm. an eyewitness account. Um, but in the case of the other Gospels, if you just read the text, people will say, well, there's no claim there to eyewitness testimony. Um, the, the Gospels don't claim to be eyewitness testimony. So one of the things I was doing was actually trying to identify ways in which the Gospels themselves indicate their eyewitness sources. Um, so, for example, as I began with Mark, I actually have most to say in the book about Mark and John. Um, but beginning with Mark um, and taking as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an idea to explore at least um, <clears throat> what Papias says soon after the end of the New Testament period, Papias says that Mark acted as Peter's interpreter and wrote his gospel on the basis of Peter's teaching. Well, let's look at the role of Peter in the gospel of Mark. Um, and Peter, of course, is the character apart from Jesus who appears most often in the gospel. His presence is almost everything that happens in the gospels, in the gospel of Mark until quite close to the end. Um, he's also the first character to be, to be named in Mark's gospel mm. and the last character to be named. Now, if you put that phenomenon of the gospel together with the more literary point that the gospels, most people now agree, are generically um, lives of Jesus, biography in the ancient sense of the life of a, of a great person, um, people expected a contemporary biography, something written within um, living memory of the subject, they expected it to be based on eyewitness testimony. Um, and they would be looking for the identification of the eyewitnesses. So if you come to Mark's Gospel, as I think many of the first readers in here would have done, with the expectation that that's the sort of literature that it is, they would be looking out for indications of who the eyewitnesses were. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of very important because the ways the gospel like gospels identify the eyewitnesses are not necessarily obvious to us but they could be much clearer to someone who expects them to be there as it were and is looking out for them yeah so is there a is there a sort of um, early greco-roman biography aspect to it that they're writing it in a certain style that we don't really understand or is there uh, more exactly, to it exactly and, and I mean, it's, it's, it's like the case of the book of revelation you know, to understand the book of Revelation properly, you've got to understand the genre of literature to which it belonged, um, which was that of the Jewish apocalypse. Similarly, to understand the Gospels adequately, um, we have to recognize that they belong in uh, this category of ancient literature, which was the Greco-Roman 
theos, the life of, of a well-known person. Um, and there were, there were, you know, all, all kinds of literature had their own literary conventions. Um, and if we come to ancient literature, the conventions that we are used to in, shall we say, modern biographies, um, we may be misinterpreting them. We may be, we may say, as many people said in the past, these are not biographies because they're not like modern biographies, but they are like ancient biographies. And that's the category. And the key thing, I think, for my thesis is that um, biographies written within living memory, contemporary biographies, would be expected to be well-based in the eyewitness sources. So either the author must be an eyewitness himself, or the author will have met and spoken to, interviewed, um, heard accounts from eyewitnesses. So the eyewitnesses ought to be quite close to um, the, the, the text of an ancient biography. Now, of course, there were bad historians in the ancient world um, who, who, who did this badly and pretended to have eyewitnesses when they didn't really and all that kind of thing. I mean, you, you, could, you could do this fraudulently or carelessly. You're not, you're, it doesn't guarantee you've got good history. You need a good historian to get good history. Um, but the point is that even those who were doing really rather bad history had to claim to have eyewitnesses um, because eyewitnesses are part of the genre. Um, so the first thing to do is to identify the eyewitnesses in the Gospels. And then it's a secondary question uh, whether whether these are reliable, whether this is, is good history. Right. Um, people, people can get things wrong. You know, people can make all sorts of mistakes. People can make things up. So you haven't immediately got to, as it were, the historical truth of the Gospels by identifying eyewitnesses, but you've got much, much further in asking the question when you've identified eyewitnesses. Yeah, then, that, then at that point it becomes a, a faith decision at some level of whether or not God uh, gave us the truth in these eyewitness testimonies or not, right? Well, no, no, I, I think you can get a lot further than, a lot further than that. Um, you can, for example, look as I did in the book, in the chapter you mentioned on the psychology of eyewitness memory, um, because a lot of people nowadays instinctively distrust memory. Right. You know, we're in a period when memory has become a rather dubious factor for a number of reasons. Um, and of course, there are circumstances in which memory is very unreliable. Um, but I think what the science tells us, and there's been lots of really serious scientific work on memory, and including eyewitness memory. What the science, I think, tells us is that there are conditions under which memory works well and conditions under which it doesn't. Um, there, are, there are sorts of things that you remember well and other sorts of things that you don't. And so if you sort out all that stuff, I think you can get to the point of saying that actually the Gospels look rather like the sort of thing that people remember well. Um, and uh, and was remembered un under the conditions that would enable them to remember well. So that's one step you can make. But the other thing you can do, which I haven't done in that book, it requires a whole lot of quite different work, is you can test the historical value of a text by asking about um, how well does it fit into the historical context that it purports to be telling you about. So do the Gospels actually fit 
into um, Jewish Palestine in that period of the early first century, um, given all that we now know, and we, we know it a great deal, a great deal more than, huge degree more than we did 100 years ago, about all sorts of things in, in first century Jewish Palestine. So there's a huge amount of work to be done, actually, um, in looking seriously at, do the Gospels, and it, it involves a lot of things the Gospels aren't, as it were, deliberately telling us about, but the things that are just part of the uh, the landscape that the story is happening within. You know, the various different religious groups in Judaism, the, the, the political structure, all sorts of things like that. Um, uh, and people, you see, have looked at all that. They've looked at it from the point of view of interpreting the New Testament. Um, you, you understand this parable of Jesus better if you know something about the relevant context in the first century Jewish Palestine. But we have to turn all that round if we're asking a, um, a question about historical value. We have to turn it all round and say, how well do the Gospels correspond to what we know of that context? Um, so I think that's a major avenue that people need to be exploring. Quite different one from what I did in the book. Well, you may have just given a PhD student a dissertation topic. Uh, 50 PhD students, I would hope. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's talk about a recent book that you worked on, uh, on Magdala of Galilee, the uh, the fishing city out in Galilee. So that was recently excavated, and there's all kinds of, of insights on early Judaism and early Christianity that we can glean from that, which uh, I'm assuming is, is what you guys are going for in the book. So what are some things that we have learned? Uh, well, uh, actually, explain the city a little bit, and then what we've learned about early Judaism and Christianity from that excavation. Yes, um, Magdala is just a few miles south of Capernaum, it's on the shore of the lake. So it's, it's bang in the area in which much of Jesus' ministry was, was concentrated, that area around the northeast, uh, northwestern shore of the, of, of the Lake of Galilee. Um, and people often think but Magdala must have been a little tiny fishing village. It wasn't. It was a city. Mm. Um, a major place, really important. Dominated the fishing on the lake. And I think I first got interested in it because I was interested in the fishermen among Jesus' disciples. Um, uh, what would it have been like to be a fisherman um, in first century Galilee? And I think that question takes you to Magdala because Magdala is so important. It has a fleet of 200 fishing boats. I mean, amazing. Um, and it manufactured um, salted fish and, and fish sauce. Um, it processed the fish. Um, so it's a really important place for the fishing industry. Um, the thing about Magdala that has attracted most of I mean, I was very interested in the fish factories when I first went there, but most people are more interested in the synagogue um, because the discovery of the synagogue um, was, was really... Um, uh, hugely important. Um, until they discovered the synagogue in Magdala, um, it was possible to say that maybe there weren't any built synagogues in first century Galilee. None had actually been excavated. Um, we have a few synagogues in the period in other places, but none in Galilee. But this is really significant because if you read the stories of Jesus in Galilee, synagogues crop up all the time. You know, they're a major part of the, or, 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 of the world that Jesus inhabits and his disciples. Um, now, you could say, people did say this sometimes, that 
they weren't that the, actually the gospels don't refer to buildings they simply refer the word synagogue could just mean a sort of gathering of people um so maybe they were just gathering and didn't have purpose-built structures but luke certainly talks about purpose-built structures in, in capernaum and nazareth um the, the trouble with capernaum of course is if you go there there's a wonderful synagogue um which a lot of people think oh this must be where jesus preached but the synagogue in capernaum that you see was built in the third, fourth, or maybe even the fifth century. Mm. And it doesn't go back to the time of Jesus, and probably they, they have dug. You see, they can't. They, you can't excavate where the, the first century synagogue was because it was almost certainly underneath the later synagogue, and you can't tear that one apart in order to get down. So they they they, they did a sort of um, uh, shaft. They just dug down uh, and sort of explored. And there was another building underneath. You can't get any further than that, really. Um, so there's room for debate if, if you're inclined to doubt whether there was a first-century synagogue. But in Magdala, here we have a first-century synagogue. Um, and uh, it also has this remarkable, um, quite unique object, um, uh, an engraved stone. A, a, a stone might describe it as a small table. It's not all clear what it was. It's a block of stone. Um, with uh, remarkable graphic designs, which have been hugely debated. Um, most people agree at least that the designs have something to do with the temple. And that's enormously important for what we think about synagogues, um, because it, at a stroke it tells us something that none of the literary evidence tells us, that people thought of what they were doing in synagogue as having something to do with the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, that's a Wonderful illustration of how uh, literary sources can be frustratingly silent on things, <laughs> and the archaeology can, can can really fill, fill it fill it out. So the synagogue and its stone, I think, is tremendously important. Um, if you go there now, the guides will probably tell you that Jesus must have met Mary Magdalene in that synagogue. I have to say, it's not entirely certain whether that synagogue was there actually in the time of Jesus, it may be a little bit later. And of course, we don't know where he met. Mary Magdalene may well have gone to Capernaum and met him there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, incidentally, when I was listening to one of these guides at one point, I, I, I heard um, a tourist was asking her, this is the synagogue where Jesus met me. Oh, yes, yes, that's where Jesus met. And, and probably this house over here, here was where she lived, <laughs> pointing to a, a, a rather wealthy uh, house that they've excavated not far from the synagogue. Of course, we've got no reason at all to think it was Mary Magdalene's house. <laughs> but I, I thought that's how legends start, you know. In in a few decades, there'll be a notice there saying Mary Magdalene's house. Now, did, did you challenge him at all, or did you, did you just let it go? No, 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 I, I didn't want to. You know, I, was, <laughs> I, I was just overhearing it. I didn't want to intrude. Yeah, that's the, the danger of knowledge. You could walk up and be like, actually, <laughs> let me guide this tour for a little bit. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's undoubtedly where Mary Magdalene uh, came from, but to be honest, I don't think it really tells us anything very much more about Mary Magdalene. Mm. Um, but it tells us a lot about the world of, of, of Jesus. Um, and one of the things that is becoming clearer, that the excavations of a number of smaller sites, villages and, and, and so forth, in the same area, kind of between Magdalene and Capernaum, it's becoming clear that that area around the northwest shore of the Lake of Galilee was, was very heavily populated. It was the most populous area or, around the lake in the time of Jesus. And that's a, a, 
what would be an element in explaining why did Jesus make Capernaum the basis for much of his ministry? Mm. It was a good place to reach a lot of people. Um, and, you know, you think of all those crowds in Mark's Gospel, you know, they, they can't cope with all these crowds of people pressing to get to see Jesus. A lot of those people would have come from Magdala, um, which is only just down the road. Yeah, I was going to ask, that That led me to another question. Are there any events or major stories in the Gospels that have maybe been misappropriated to Capernaum that may have been, not not by the text itself, but by historians that may have happened in Magdala? Is there any scenes that you think may be more likely, historically speaking, or can we can we not know that either, as well as where Mary Magdalene lived? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we can know that. Um, I mean, it, 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 of course, Magdalene is not mentioned in the Gospels except in the name Mary Magdalene. Right. Mary Magdalene. Um, but it, it's incredible that Jesus never went there because um, the route he would have walked from Nazareth to Capernaum goes at right by the, the, the gate of the city. Um, and to imagine he never went in. Um, <laughs> and and it, you know, it's, a, it's a half a day's walk from Capernaum. It's, uh, you know, it's he must have gone there, even though the Gospels don't mention it. Um, there is the, the other thing, of course, people often say that the big cities of Galilee, um, Sepphoris and Tiberias, are not mentioned in the Gospels either, not as places Jesus went to. And it may be for some of his ministry, Jesus kept clear of the big cities, because remember, he was in danger of arrest from Herod Antipas. Um, and big cities might have been more dangerous um, from that point of view than... Than, than other places. But I think the key thing is that Jesus was in that area. You know, he was, he was in Capernaum, and whilst um, we certainly talked about it, you know, going all over Galilee to farms and, and villages and, and towns. Um, but there's a, Mark's, Mark's very interesting because most of Mark's narrative of Jesus in Galilee is set in Capernaum, but he also says Jesus went all over the place in Galilee right. and doesn't tell us any stories about that except one or two. Um, so the focus on Capernaum uh, is as, as, as we have it, but it doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't everywhere else. But even supposing he spent a huge amount of time in Capernaum, he was, he was well known. Um, he, was, you know, he was famous. Um, people came all over, from all over the place uh, to bring their sick and so forth and to hear him. Um, and they would have come from Magdala. You know, it, it, it really is just down the road. Um, so the people in Magdala were um, definitely part of Jesus' audience. Mm -hmm. Okay, so final question for you. What do you like to do for fun outside of come up with new ideas for, for research and writing? <laughs> well, I'm, as I said before, I'm a very intellectual person, so I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy novels, I write poetry. Um, I do enjoy gardening as well. Have you published any of your poetry? Um, yes, there's, there's, there's a lot of it on my website. Um, I've not published it in print anywhere very much. But Would you say that uh, along with a lot of other people that the best theologians study poetry and novels and literature to help them actually speak normal language to people? <laughs> well, that's a, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good point. Um, and I think, I think um, you know, a theologian needs to understand life as well as the texts. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of insight into life in, in, in novels and poetry. Mm. Well, Dr. Bacham, thank you so much for taking some time. I know we, we went through a, a good amount of technological difficulties over the last week to make this happen, and I appreciate your persistence. Okay, good. It's been good to talk to you.